Good morning. Uh, I want to ask uh, the uh, Tomias and the Runyons and the Pattons and the Freelands and the Harringtons and Becca Wood. Uh, who else was involved last night? Stand up, please. Todd and Jessica. Anybody who was involved last night? Uh, if, you, if you all would take a look at these folks, you'll notice something. They're all young adults. And uh, young adults have other things to do. Uh, but this fellowship is blessed tremendously to have young adults who could have been out with their spouses or with their friends, uh, and instead they were ministering to dads and daughters last night in a way you cannot imagine. I'm not sure who was blessed more, the dads or the daughters, but it was because of the efforts of these young people. Thank you very much. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read portions of a very familiar story there. And this is a parable uh, that uh, Jesus brought to his disciples, and there, starting in verse 11, it says, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the father divided his wealth between his sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant land and there squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he was sent into the fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am here dying with hunger. Skipping to verse 20, so he got up, came to his father, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I have a question for you right now. Who does the prodigal son's father represent? Okay? We'll come back to that. There's a lot of talk these days about the American dream. I mean, Congress is even trying to pass an act by that name. Uh, Now, I think that the American dream has essentially become the feeling of being free from all pain and all worry, anything at all that troubles us. And some essentially say today that a happy and pain-free life 
is an inalienable right of American citizenship, and the government must provide no less. But yet, deep down inside, we all know pain is going to come at some point, in some way, oftentimes when we least expect it. And what about that special type of pain called grief? Even admitting its inevitability. Another question is, is hurting a necessary part of life? Not is it inevitable, but is it necessary? Some preach that God never wants you or I to hurt. But while faith in Christ as our Savior is the only way to have lasting joy and security, try as we may, we cannot find in the pages of Scripture the happy face doctrine. On the contrary, Scripture is filled with one example after another of realism. Abraham cried when Sarah died. Jeremiah preached judgment with tears and was known as the weeping prophet. A woman washed the feet of Jesus with her tears. Uh, Jesus himself wept when his friend Lazarus died. And he also anguished with tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he watched Peter, who wept bitterly after he denied his Savior. And then he comforted the weeping Mary Magdalene after his resurrection. Clearly, tears are not a sign of weakness or lack of faith, as some would suggest. And God never wants us to pretend that we don't hurt or that sorrow is not real. You can't make the pain of truth or the truth of pain disappear simply by wishing it away. In fact, Psalm 56 says that God bottles our tears. So precious are they to him. Our text for today is Matthew 5, 4. And there, Jesus himself says, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Think about that. Is that a typo? How can those two go together? On the face of it, it appears they're not just contradictory, but counterintuitive. In other words, without thinking much, you just know that you can't be mournful and happy. So, in what sense is God's Word telling us that we can discover comfort and joy through sorrow? Well, let's take a look. The Greek word for mourn there, pentheo, means to grieve, lament, or mourn over a severe, painful loss. And there are actually no less than nine Greek words expressing grief, but pentheo is the most intensive term of internal grief. 
it indicates uh, self-contained grief, which may be noticed by, no, by others, but doesn't involve an excessive display of grief. Another question is, mourning over what? passage doesn't say, does it? And most commonly, we would think of mourning over the loss of a loved one. And certainly, I think that could be an application. But I think if you take this verse in context, we would look for a primary application of mourning over sin. Back in November, we started, we looked at the first beatitude, and then we, we talked about how being poor in spirit uh, will necessarily involve being sensitive to, to sin and therefore quick to mourn over it, but not in the way that the world does. Have you ever noticed somebody who was grieving over what happens as a result of sin? It's usually with wails of anguish when they face the consequences. Uh, the boy caught playing hooky, that's old-fashioned for truancy, cries and wails on his way to the woodshed, that's old school for hurt. <laughs> Instead, here, Jesus implores us to redirect our focus from the consequences to genuine sorrow for our sin, repentance, contrition, Confession leading to a plea of mercy and grace. This was certainly the case uh, with Peter after his denial of Christ and in the Old Testament with David after his sin involving Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And this has to include not just the sins that are apparent to all, but also those hidden secret sins the ones that are difficult to confront because we kind of think we're going to get away with them. Uh, but is there really any sin that God doesn't know all about? Uh, Psalm 19, David asked God to cleanse him from secret sins. Now, grammatically, the Greek word mourn it is a participle which represents linear action as opposed to punctiliar, I love that word, meaning finished, completed action, or as opposed to the, the perfect uh, uh, tense in which you have con action with continuous results. Linear action is continued, regular, and repeated action. Therefore, in order to be a true mourner, a Christian must continually adopt the attitude of mourning over sin. In fact, the reformer Martin Luther, when he tacked his 95 theses to the, the door in Wittenberg for debate, his first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, in our media-saturated culture, especially among the young, we are showered with sin. Gradually, it is possible that we become like some policemen, hardened, callous, accustomed to sin, 
We can come to think that, well, sin just happens, uh, and it's a normal part of life. Carl Menninger, the founder of the institution out here, wrote a book, believe it or not, that was called Whatever Became of Sin, giving voice to the notion in the latter part of the 20th century that the concept of sin was rapidly evolving from, or, 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 or evaporating from our culture. While we as Christians should not be naively surprised when sin occurs, the body of Christ must maintain or renew and have a continuous awareness of the awful reality, the presence and the power of sin, and our own vulnerability to it. And in fact, instead of bemoaning the loss of a moral compass for our nation, the body of Christ should spend more time mourning over our own sins because judgment begins with the house of the Lord. David said in Psalm 38, For my iniquities are gone over my head as my... As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester. Because of my folly, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. Our only hope, our only escape, is complete dependence upon God and repentance. Our our mourning should be a continuous cry to Him in our distress with sin knowing that we are helpless to remove the stench of violating His holiness. Now, practically, how do we accomplish that? How do we mourn? Well, let's learn some lessons from the prodigal son here. First of all, and I think these are the the points on your study sheet, We need to expose and reject false ideas. While the the prodigal worked for his father, uh, he started to think about the grass on the other side of the fence. Wouldn't it be nice to be on my own, out from the control of my parents? with my friends as much as I want, stay up as late as I want, do whatever I want. And today we would add Facebook and video games all day long, any movie I want, do whatever I want, anything, anytime, any place. Well, prodigal did just that. Now, there was that pesky problem of having to pay for his fun So he took an advance on his inheritance. Now, do you suppose that the prodigal developed an attitude over time that the principles that his father had used in building his home and his business and his family and his whole life were old-fashioned, outdated, and that he the son could improve upon those. 
Well, we know by what happened that the prodigal had the idea that life without constraints could fulfill all the desires of his heart. And mourning over his, this attitude was the farthest thing from his mind as long as he had the means to carry it out. He could indulge himself in the pleasures for a season and enjoy his friends, but this lifestyle not only dissipated his spiritual and financial potential, damaged his father's reputation, no doubt, but more importantly, it clearly violated scriptural commands and had lifelong consequences. Now, I want to step aside here and ask a question. How many dads today would do what his father did? Give you your inheritance while living to an older child who is not making right decisions. I mean, he could have said, hey, if you don't like it here, go on out on your own and make it yourself. And I've got to admit, I've said that a time or two. But I suspect that this father saw that he was in a bit of a desperate situation. And he knew that he had to risk something. He had to risk his son's inheritance to regain something that was much more valuable. Sometimes dads have to decide between protecting a child through their power and authority and simply allowing a stubborn kid to learn a lesson on his own. I'm not saying this would be our first option in every case, but when an older, perhaps an adult child who's in your household is not listening to counsel, you know, what he did becomes much, much more appealing. Second point is, we need to view trials as God's prompting. Isn't it interesting that God timed this mighty famine to occur just when the money ran out? Uh, Because money gives a false sense of security, independence, and power. Uh, Then his money, and not too surprisingly, his old friends vanished, and his chosen lifestyle would lead him right back to the the authority he had rejected. But now, under much more harsh conditions. Thirdly, we should see offenses through the eyes of those we have wronged. His new friends were just pigs, literally. So, he began to think about his beloved family again and his past relationships. He began to understand how he had treated his family, particularly his dad, and his bankrupt condition before both God and man. And that's when he determined what he would say to dad. Fourthly, it's important to recognize the cause of sin. 
the cause of sin. The prodigal started his confession with an acknowledgement of a sin against heaven. True mourning and repentance don't come from being sorry for the consequences, but rather by recognizing that the cause is willful rebellion against God and his holy standards. David said in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Finally, the fifth point here on your sheet. Understand that while mourning often begins with worldly sorrow, it must end with godly sorrow. You know, the the prodigal was initially grieved over his deplorable conditions in which he found himself, the consequences. But he eventually came to understand his unworthiness before God and his Father. Worldly sorrow is self-centered and focuses on the consequences. Godly sorrow is concerned about how God has been offended by our sin. Worldly sorrow draws us away from God to despair. Godly sorrow always drives us back to God. In James 4, when addressing offenses between believers, James exhorts us that, therefore, the Scripture says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. And thankfully, He will lift you up. Then in Paul, you know, Mike taught a while back about the different letters of the Corinthians to the Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 7, in writing to the church at Corinth, after hearing of their response to his earlier letter, which confronted their sin, Paul wrote this, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I want to make an analogy here. I'm not a farmer, but I understand that when a field is plowed over and over again at the same depth, eventually there will develop a hard surface just under the depth of the plow. And they call that a plow pan. And this hard surface prevents the roots from going down deep for needed water during times of drought. It's a little bit like the parable of the sower where the seed is thrown on stony ground. 
the seed can sprout up in the loose soil above the plow pan, but the seed does not develop deep roots. And when hardships come, drought or disease, the plant withers and dies. Before that, all can look good on the surface, uh, but it may be because all this, the, the surface dirt looks rich, but below that, you've got this hard plow pan, a hidden layer of hardness. And eventually, the true quality of the soil is evidenced by the fruit that it produces. <clears throat> About 175 years ago, God used this concept conveyed through the evangelist Charles Finney to help bring about a great revival in the eastern United States. And Finney said, in essence, a person, saved or unsaved, can develop a plow pan in his heart. If someone hears the word of God over and over again and never lets it reach down into his heart, a layer of hardness can develop just like the plow pan. He may look fine on the, on the surface, but deep inside he has this layer of hardness that will not allow God's truth to penetrate. Now, to break up the plow pan, God must reach down deep below the layer of that hardness and break it apart. Farmers use what's called, as I understand, a chisel plow. It's a plow that's longer, and it reaches down below the hard, hard surface and breaks it up so that they can replant again. And so God uses trials and afflictions as his chisel plow to break up our hard hearts and bring conviction. And when the heart is broken... God's living water can begin to flow, bringing nourishment to the seeds that have been sown in the heart. Well, let's move to the second part of the verse. They shall be comforted. The emphatic pronoun they in the Greek means they alone. In other words, they and only they shall be comforted. It is only those who mourn for their sins, as we have addressed, that re receive whatever this comfort is. David realized this in Psalm 71. You have shown me many troubles and distresses. You will revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. So the good news is, that they will be comforted. And that, in Greek, this verb means to call to one side, to support, help, and intercede. This word also carries several other ideas which, when combined, give the understanding that this comforter comes alongside to help and answer our cries by beseeching, admonishing, consoling, sympathizing, encouraging, strengthening, and teaching in order to provide complete deliverance from the guilt of sin and bring the wonder of eternal life for those who have not found it.
Now, who does this comforting? Mike taught a couple of weeks ago accurately that our God is the God of all comfort. In 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by him. So clearly all comfort originates from the Father. However, the Holy Spirit is the Father's agent comforting each believer. When Jesus was announcing his impending departure in John 14, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, the King James uses the word comforter, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now this word comfort in Matthew 5, 4 derives from the same root as the noun paraclete or advocate. And it's used to refer specifically to the Holy Spirit. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to comfort, teach, guide, keep, and intercede for the believer. So this paraclete or the Holy Spirit is the ministering agent for the comfort of our Father. And because this believer, this Holy Spirit, is always with believers, we are not left alone to cry out hopelessly in the darkness, groping here and there. It is a huge relief to be assured of the comfort of God. Now, back to the question I asked early on. Who does the prodigal's father represent? To repeat, it says in verse 20 of Luke 15, So the son got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Now keep in mind, prodigal had wasted his inheritance. It was gone. There were consequences to his sin. But by recognizing, confessing, repenting from his sin, and walking humbly back to his father, the prodigal gained back something vastly more important than his inheritance. The eager, unhesitating comfort and love of his father. It seems to me that this wise and loving Father represents the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as well as the Father God. Any parent who's had a child humbly repent of a stubborn sin, as have I, knows this unspeakable joy. Now, getting back to the technical parts here, the tense of this verb is future. 
for they shall be comforted. And some hold that the passage, therefore, is intended for the messianic kingdom. Uh, This would mean that believers are deprived of this comfort in the present when it would seem that that comfort is most needed and and it remains for the kingdom when there really isn't any sorrow and the comfort is not so needed. In contrast, all of Scripture testifies of God's comfort in the present. And the writer of Hebrews quotes Deuteronomy 31 when he states, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the literalist persists, it's still future tense. Well, yeah, it is future tense and that's appropriate. But that's a wrong interpretation. The verb is future with respect to mourning. So this could be rendered, blessed now are the mourners, for they shall at once be comforted, and it will continue to be so on into the future. And as you mourn in the future, you shall be comforted. Now, how is this comforting accomplished? Again, the passage doesn't tell us. But I think we can infer here. We can let Scripture interpret Scripture. Remember that the Greek word for comfort, parakaleo, means to call to one side for, in order to beseech, admonish, console, sympathize, encourage, strengthen, and to teach. And we know that this agent of comfort is the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, And we can say that the Holy Spirit does all this, but how does he do it? Well, uh, there are some verses, I think, on your page there, and and you can look them up. In, In John 16, in referring to the Holy Spirit, it says, He will guide you unto all truth. In 1 Corinthians 2, He will reveal the deep things of God. And in John 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. The inference, to me anyway, is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the born-again believer brings discernment to understand the Word of God. Read your Bible. Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. James 1, 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. To wrap things up, Matthew 5.4, the beatitude dealing with mourning, is a complement to Matthew 5.3. Being poor in spirit is the kind of the intellectual aspect. Mourning is the emotional aspect of the same thing. It is only to those whose mourning springs 
from a poverty of spirit that God's comfort is promised. Now, thankfully, our present days of mourning over sin are limited. One of the most comforting aspects of being a believer in Jesus Christ is that we know we will be with him and there will be no more death, no more sorrows, no more tears. Lord God, we thank you. We humbly ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would bring about a poverty of spirit, and that in that process we would understand the gravity of sin in our lives and how it tears us apart from what's true, from our family members, from those we love the most, from others. Most of all, Lord, how that sin separates us from you. Help us also to understand that through your Holy Spirit, you have worked to bring comfort to us. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of those sins, for the ability that we have, knowing that, that no sin will overtake us. There is nothing that we do not have the ability to overcome because of your love for us and sending Jesus to the cross for each one of us to pay the full payment for those sins. Father, help us to mourn continually over sin so that we might rejoice continually and eternally with you. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, amen.